So you may have noticed an uptick of Delaware propaganda in the Philadelphia media lately. Ten great places to visit in the first state clickbait lists have been upstaged. In March, the longtime Philadelphia Inquirer restaurant critic Craig LeBon penned a rave review of several fine dining spots in northern Delaware. In this month's Philadelphia magazine, Wilmington gets a full spread in the city life section, calling our little hamlet a burgeoning it city just next door. It reads, as you would expect, like a piece of Buccini pollen agiprop, meant to entice the upwardly mobile urban professional managerial set and hipsters alike to make the journey or even move to one of BPG's great new buildings, just minutes from Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. train station. This passage was particularly telling, and I think it's a nice way to begin our discussion today. Keeping Wilmington clean has been a priority of my administration from day one, Mayor Przicki told me. The city partners with nonprofits to clear litter from downtown and residential neighborhoods. It has also cracked down on illegal dumping, sweeps the streets regularly, and recently distributed new trash bins to 21,000 homes. Rob Buccini, known around town for picking up stray litter, says Wilmington's cleanliness, quote, will be one of my legacies. He's been a squeaky wheel about it for years. BPG also stationed security guards around town because, Rob explains, clean and safe streets set the tone for visitors and potential residents. That's why the parking garages are brightly lit with cameras all over and a 24-hour command center that actually watches them. We want people to feel as safe as possible. Restaurant owners I spoke with echoed Rob's point about cleanliness and safety and say they found Wilmington an easy place to do business. Want a liquor license? In Delaware, that's a few grand. In Philadelphia, that'll be a few hundred grand with a complex, inequitable process. The phrase, quote, pro-business government came up a lot in my interviews. Both the Buccinis, big business, and Oba Jackson, the tattoo studio owner, small business, tell me that getting permits is pretty easy. In Wilmington, at least, Jackson found the state government unhelpful when he opened his business. It's a far cry from Philly's web of complications and dearth of customer service that can make life hell for entrepreneurs. The ease of doing business is part of why Bardet, as Scott Stein says, he and his partner DeMeo haven't even entertained offers to open restaurants in Philly, New York City, and D.C. They've recently doubled down on Wilmington with pizza and taco stalls in the Deco Food Hall and a big-time steakhouse opening this spring. Mayor Przicki has made responsiveness a priority, from fixing potholes to willing new employers. He says, quote, If you're an out-of-state CEO, I'll get back to you in five minutes. Give me another 15, I'll get the governor on the phone. I know you can't do that in Pennsylvania, and I know you can't do that in New York. Comrades and friends, hello from the shadow of Rockford Tower behind enemy lines in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Uh, Rob here, as always, uh, with super producer Carl beaming in from a secure remote location. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, First is Professor Dale Norwood. Professor Norwood teaches American history at the University of Delaware. He is also the author of the book Trading Freedom, How Trade with China Defined Early America, which examines the flourishing commerce between the United States and China, intertwined with struggles over sovereignty, citizenship, and race that defined the first century of the American state. Uh, Dale, I'm so happy you could join us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And our main guest today is Hal Weitzman. Hal is the editor-in-chief of Chicago Booth and previously with the Financial Times. He is the author of an excellent new book, which is our focus today. What's the matter with Delaware? How the first state has favored the rich, powerful, and criminal, and how it costs us all. 
Uh, I am pleased to welcome Hal Weitzman to the Highlands Bunker podcast. Hello, Hal. Hello. Um, folks, I want you to be sure to listen to the details at the end of this episode to find out how you could win one of five, five signed copies of Hal's book. So that's very exciting. Um, we'll keep that for the end. Uh, I wanted to start this way. About six or seven years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a news journal reporter, Lex Wilson. Um, he's actually a Carl Baker's housemate, who I think has done a lot of financial reporting here uh, in Wilmington. Um, Lex was relatively new to the area, and I said that the most important story in Delaware to me was corporate law, LLCs, tax havens, money laundering. Um, and, you know, everybody knows that exists, but doesn't get talked about uh, in this context. Um, how did you get turned on to it? A journalist from Wales, uh, how did you get turned on to this story? What was your motivation? Thanks. Um, well, so I was at the Financial Times for um, 12 years. I was a reporter in South America, and then I came up to um, to, be a re to be a reporter here in Chicago. And it was always clear to me, and even when I was back editing other people's copy in London, uh, that Delaware was somehow important. It was. It always seemed to be around. There were Delaware companies. There were co companies going for some reason to courts in Delaware. You know, it always seemed to be there. And so all roads seemed to lead through Delaware. And that just stuck in the back of my mind. And I didn't think anything more of it. And everyone else seemed to just think that that was part of the system. And, you know, there was nothing interesting about it. And um, and then, you know, uh, when I came to, to Chicago Booth Review um, and, and left daily journalism, I was chatting with, as actually I give the credit to my editor at Princeton University Press, Joe Jackson. And we used, Joe Jackson and I used to go for lunch uh, every week here at a greasy spoon in Hyde Park, Chicago, called uh, Salonica, which is a great restaurant. Um, when I say great, I mean more atmosphere than food. You got me, you got me uh, hungry there, Rob, with all the talk of the restaurants at the beginning. But <laughs> the, um, the the we, we would chat and about various topics that we could write books about, and uh, one of them was was Delaware. And we just had these very basic questions: How did Delaware become this center for whatever it was? We didn't really know what, but somehow this corporate uh, location, this important part of the capitalist system and um so joe said well why don't you look into it and i looked into it and um and it seemed the more i looked into it the more fascinating it became i was really interested in what people were using delaware corporations to do because those were the headlines but i felt there was a really unreported story which you guys will know but outside delaware nobody really knows about how the rules get made in Delaware. And you talked a little bit about that there, Rob, in your introduction. But that to me was fascinating because, you know, I, I live in Illinois. So dodgy dealings in local government is no surprise to me. Actually, Rob, in Wales, that, that's very similar. That's, that's in a lot of democratic world and, and, and elsewhere, the way that decision-making gets made at local level is not clean. That's not com that's not uncommon. What is uncommon is the fact that Delaware punches so much above its weight. You know, there's just the, the sheer presence of Delaware in our everyday lives. And um, it was digging into that that got me really, really fascinated. Just just thinking about the fact that wherever you live in the United States and probably nowadays in the world, you interact with a Delaware corporation 
probably multiple times a day, you know, whether it's Google or Amazon or Facebook, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, Visa, MasterCard, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS. We just go on and on. Everything you do, there's, there's an opportunity for you to interact with a Delaware corporation. So Delaware is sort of the corporate air that we all breathe. We're all consumers in some sense. Um, and even just doing a, uh, something like a Google search, you're contributing in some way to the Delaware system. You're, they're going to take your data in that case. They're going to sell your data. They're going to use a tiny proportion of that money um, to pay fees that go into funding Delaware's system of government. And just, I mean, we can talk more about this, but the way that Delaware flipped the business model of how states fund themselves is fascinating. You know, every other state is still dependent on things like, uh, or still wants to be dependent on, on, on traditional taxes, like taxing corporations. And Delaware seemed to completely bypass that by charging fees instead of taxes. Um, so all these things added up to something very, very fascinating. Just to complete the story, Joe and I said, this is a really interesting story. But at the time, I had four very little kids, now slightly older kids. And I said, I don't have time to write this, but let's find someone to write it. So we approached various people, high quality journalists at national publications, and nobody wanted to write this book about Delaware. I think they all thought Delaware was just too boring, too specific. And they always got enticed by the biggest stories, the stories about, you know, money laundering or corruption or kleptocracy. And those are the books. And you will have seen those kinds of books being published. There are always these global things. And it is, of course, a global problem. To me, though, the fact that it was grounded in this real place was fascinating. And, you know, I, I don't want to be, I, I like Delaware and I've enjoyed visiting um, but Delaware doesn't have a reputation as, a, as an exciting or exotic place. You know, so when we think of, you know, things like money laundering or tax, um, evade, uh, tax uh, you know, avoidance and evasion and, um, and sort of corporate secrecy, we think of glamorous, exotic places like the British Virgin Islands or Panama or the Cayman Islands or Cyprus or you know, places like um, Luxembourg, which maybe isn't that exciting in real life, but sounds exciting. Um, it, locations that are two things. First, they're exotic. And second, they're over there. They're somewhere else. And this to me was fascinating because it was not only was it over here and not over there, but it, of all places, it was Delaware, you know, and those of us who don't live in Delaware remember the scene from Wayne's World where they find themselves in Delaware, you know, and don't know anything about Delaware. So kind of the very ordinariness of it is its great strength and enables Delaware to kind of fly under the radar and, and be an integral part of the system without calling any attention to itself. Yeah, I, I found it interesting and it leads to my first question. At the beginning of the book in the introduction, you, um, you mentioned that um, being from Wales, a lot of, you know, a, a piece of an iceberg broke off half the size of Wales. Or everything's compared in size to Wales. And when you moved here, you realize that's Delaware for here because of its size, which I found very interesting because people in Delaware are obsessed with that coming up all the time in media as well. So it, it, it right off the bat um, kind of showed that you, you sort of understand what's going on here in a sense. 
Um, but the other more important part of it is, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit, is is the small size makes it perfect to manage sort of a tax haven in a financialized state. If you think about um, some of the other places you mentioned, Luxembourg, small, Bahamas, like islands, archipelagos, sort of, uh, you know, they're all sort of, I don't want to say insignificant, but 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 sort of to the side, out of out of out of sight, and and certainly the the people who manage um, the franchise certainly want to keep it that way. And I think the idea of you asking other sort of journalists and, and and nobody really being interested. I mean, I find that same thing here. Being here, we hear stories about this when there's a scandal, when somebody has when you know when you know when Stormy Daniels gets paid off through an LLC. Or when there's a, a you know a back page scandal for child trafficking, or somebody is um, trafficking guns, Th- the story does get told here, but it gets tamped down very quickly, uh, and there's never any analysis of well, what what else is really happening? Um, but I, I I'd like you to just talk about the the size and the management of it before we get into a little bit of the history, um, because that is how you start the book and and uh, and what you think about that. Yeah, and thank you for that question. And size is uh, size matters. So Wales is actually about four times as big as Delaware size-wise. No bragging. Stop bragging. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we always used to say, uh, Rob, when I was growing up, there's a there's a joke in Wales because Wales is very very hilly, you know, mountainous. Yeah. And the joke is, you know, if Wales were flattened out, it would be bigger than England because, of course, we we compare ourselves not to Delaware but to England, which is a great rival you know sporting and and otherwise just like we're sort of like canada looking at the united states you know um and peaceful like canada i i would say uh yeah so why is size important it's a really interesting important point it's not a coincidence that the sort of activity takes place in british virgin islands cayman islands panama cyprus and similar type places not exclusively but there is a strong correlation between smallness and um, and you know dodgy activity or being a, a, a secrecy center, and Delaware fits in with that. Um, so I think there's really two reasons why that is the case: why smallness ends up with secrecy locations are work well in small places. One is governance, and the other is revenue. If you think about governance. In smaller jurisdictions, it's just easier to get all the key decision makers in one room. So you get clubby type policy making. That's the Delaware way. But the Delaware way is really certainly not unique that you get that kind of decision making uh, everywhere, including in Wales, um, where we have much less of the much few, far fewer scandals, but we have our own kind of dodgy activity. Um, the uh, the corporate code in Delaware, which is the corporate code, not just for Delaware, of course, but for the United States and for the world in many ways, is made by the, the Corporation Council of Delaware Bar, 27 lawyers, uh, 26 of them wh- whom are working lawyers. They meet in private. They issue changes to the, to the corporate code. Your legislature in Delaware doesn't really have the capacity to scrutinize that legislation, those changes. And so they essentially rubber stamp them. And that's not a secret. That's uh, there are there are law books that will tell you that quite openly, that we bypass 
any kind of democratic oversight because that could threaten the system. So there's governance issues. Then on the rev revenue side, this is what I was talking about earlier. Delaware has a totally different revenue model to most states. Most of the income or, or much of your income comes from fees. So if you think of the an analogy I would draw is with a sort of traditional Joe Biden type political campaign and a Bernie Sanders or AOC type political campaign. The Biden campaign depends on the traditional fundraising methods, large donations from relatively small number of people. The Sanders AOC type campaign gets lots of small donations from lots of people. So ironically, Delaware is much more like Sanders than Biden in the way that it raises money. So the fees that Delaware charges aren't that much, but there's just huge volume. So in a, in a small state like Delaware, that's very significant in a way that it wouldn't be in my state, say in Illinois, our budget, our state budget is almost 10 times bigger than yours. So the, the, the fees aren't that significant. Um, and I mean, I have to say, I've mentioned your, your opinions on this, uh, you and Dale, but you get a lot of benefits from that. There's a lot of benefits from this interesting business model. Well, you mentioned... You mentioned it yourself. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that for, uh, you know, for a, a middle class person, say, um, the tax benefits are incredible. Um, you know, the, the property taxes are extremely low if you own your home. Uh, there is no sales tax. Um, you know, so so the tax burden is extremely low. And uh, so that also allows. But the, the issue with that, the issue with that benefit is that a certain class of people can then say send their kids to private schools most professionals even at you know modest levels can send their kids to private school here and so the public school system suffers actually uh, because the individual you know uh, middle class person has more funds to to do fancy stuff um, and so the the benefits are very unequal but but the benefits are there for sure I mean no question about it I, I wonder what uh, Dale thinks of that yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not a Delaware native. I moved here a few years ago and I have been, um, I, part of the reason I really appreciated your book is that it, it helps lay out in very clear language um, some of the like paradoxes of the, of the, like the political economy in Delaware, which is like, especially if you drive in over the state line from Maryland or Pennsylvania, you notice right away that the roads are not bad here. They're, they're quite good um, compared to nearby states. And uh, this is partly just me ragging on Pennsylvania, but um, but also that's weird, right? Because it's this tiny state where no one lives in it and they don't charge any taxes for anything. So how do we afford it? And, and the answer is, I think, um, and, and um, uh, you've, you've helped provide it, right? And, and also, uh, you also mentioned the thing that I, I find uh, most interesting about Delaware is the achievement stuff. Um, love to see, love to see early modern um, feudal, uh, quasi-feudal uh, uh, gestures uh, re re-invoked. Re um, but yeah, I think I think that that these kind of things overlap with each other. <clears throat> I've been um, it, since I've been at, at UD, I've been um, working with students um, investigating the history of slavery and the history of um, kind of white supremacy in the state, and also as it pertains to the university, which is uh, dates back to the antebellum era. Um, and um, and you bring this in, in in your book as well that like the the you know the, the political economy of Delaware is deeply tied to the ways that the state has supported white supremacy, 
Um, and, and maybe we can get into a little bit later about the causality of that. But I think this is one of the things just to kind of build on what Rob said, this is, this is one of the things that kind of is a, is a, is a weird quirk of it is that, or not a weird quirk. It's hard to say if it's designed or where this fits, but like the, the, the fact that there's a low tax burden in some ways is made up for by this franchise fee, but in other ways, it, it is completely disabled the public education system which in other places that have Delaware's similar history of, of slavery and then um, segregation, um, that's on purpose, right? That's, that's, a, that's a move. Um, and, the, and, the, and the pattern of development in Delaware is very similar to places like Virginia or, or Pennsylvania where, you know, de, de jure either, you know, de jure or de facto segregation has been recreated or persists um, through private uh, schooling um, and, and uh, cutting funding away from public schooling in Delaware. Whereas like maybe a more extreme example of that because it had this earlier franchise tax. But I don't think that those thing, interconnections are just like accidental. They seem to serve similar political classes and similar interests, which are wider than the, the lawyers that you have at the center of your story. And so that's kind of an interesting thing where I don't know that um, that's been fully articulated in the way that you've put it together in this book, which is really helpful and really useful to, to kind of see those two things in the same frame. It's not just that you know, politicians from here support banking and corporations. It's also that they were anti-busting. You know, I mean, those are things that are but that that are well known to some populations in Delaware, but not to a lot of outsiders, and 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 you know, are not talked about openly in 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 a lot of discussions in the state about its history. Yes, I would love to talk more about that. And but just about just one one final thought about the taxes and and the the way that it benefits the state. Um, to me, this is the economic underpinning of the Delaware way, because because you're so dependent on fees, the Delaware way wants to sort of quash any questioning of the system. And people are told that upsetting companies could drive up taxes. So nobody wants to do that. We'll all suffer if you, you know, breathe a word to the outside world about this system. So there's a kind of perfect system where the governance model and the revenue model come together to give it this strong underpinning and logic to the Delaware way. Yeah, I'll say one more thing before we move on to the next topic. I, I think Dale pointed it out. There is a, and again, itself, it sustains itself, I, I, whether it's exactly by design or not. I think it's a little bit by design, but that middle-class professional, that, that's, the, that's the base who is going to keep the secret. So if you have a middle manager at a bank because of the, uh, the interest rate and the, the, the corporate uh, largesse that we give away, that middle manager is not going to ask a lot of questions. You know, there's, there's not even a million people in this state. So if, if, if the ancillary industries that support it, like banking and law, um, you know, have, if there's enough people who sort of understand maybe implicitly that this is going on and don't say anything, it helps, it helps keep the secret. I think, uh, because people don't want to upset uh, the system as it is. Um, I, I like you to talk a little bit about because we do have a running uh, duel with New Jersey. If you could just give me like the two minute um, sort of uh, history of uh, how Wilson was in a three way uh, presidential race when he was the governor of New Jersey. And because he was getting progressive pressure um, about lax corporation laws sort of clamped down and and Delaware basically picked up where they dropped the ball. Yes, thanks. So, yeah, we all know Delaware now as being the state that has fewer than a million residents. So you're about the size of Tucson 
or Grand Rapids metro area in terms of population, but you have 1.6 million companies registered. Uh, of course, they're not actually there, but they're registered there. But it wasn't always this way, right? And Dale, you'll know a lot of this history. Um, and it wasn't as if Delaware won the industry in a fair fight, you know, through competition or through innovation. Uh, really, it was sort of um, external forces that, that gave Delaware the opportunity to steal this business away. It didn't have a better business model. So it, the history of it is that in 1888, New Jersey became the first state to allow holding companies. For the first time, one company could own another company. So that meant that a company in New Jersey could own a company in another state, which you can imagine was a big game changer. And over the following decade, New Jersey relaxed the rules a lot on things like corporate structures and what corporations could do, because it was pretty tightly managed before then. So by about 1911, much like nowadays in Delaware, the franchise tax in New Jersey accounted for about a third of the state's revenue. And other states like Delaware and a few others copied the rules from New Jersey, but they just couldn't get any traction. They couldn't get any market share. Then there was a very consequential election in 1913. Uh, Taft was the Republican president, was running for re-election. Teddy Roosevelt was running as a progressive. And Woodrow Wilson, who was the governor of New Jersey, was the Democratic nominee. So you had this three-way race. And a big issue in that election was how to regulate corporations. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern about the power of corporations. They were relatively new. Uh, there was a lot of concern about standards of regulation or lack of and what this all meant. So this was a big topic. And during the election campaign, Teddy Roosevelt, who's a pretty vociferous campaigner, attacked Wilson for not having reined in corporations. If he couldn't rein them in in New Jersey, how could he claim to do anything about them in the United States. At the same time, in New Jersey itself, there was quite a lot of pressure from um, the political parties to do something about it as well. So both the Republican and the Democratic Party of New Jersey pledged to investigate this issue and do something about it. So Wilson, of course, won the election, went home and for that lame duck period, and um, he, gave us, he gave a sort of state of the state speech and said, we have to sort this out. And so his allies in the state legislature introduced a, a, a collection of bills, one of which, for example, banned holding companies and a host of other measures to restrict this activity. And the corporations fled New Jersey and Delaware, which had, as I said, had just copied New Jersey law, was there to welcome them with uh, open arms. So it has been suggested to me that uh, when I was in Delaware, that instead of having the statue of Caesar Rodney, in the middle of Wilmington, you should have had the statue of Woodrow Wilson because he was the one who provided you with all this revenue. Although I know the statue of Caesar Rodney uh, came down. So um, my perspective has always been that Delaware is very aware of this history. You know, like Dale, you said that, that the history of race in Delaware looms large and weighs heavy. I think it's the same with this history because there's such a concern about doing anything to jeopardize this source of revenue in the same way that 
happened to New Jersey, where this was this, it was an unforced error. They just decided to quit the business. And Delaware has ever since aimed to stay ahead of any competitors by making itself as business friendly as possible. And that's how we end up where you can create a company in 30 minutes, basically in the middle of the night, without any identification at all, and, with, and without your name mentioned anywhere on the documentation. So my question is always, who wants to create a company in the middle of the night in 30 minutes without their name on it? You know, that's not going to be any, no, nothing, nothing good can come from that. Or there's bound to be some, you know, there's bound to be some wrongdoing that will flow from having a system that prioritizes the ease of doing business above everything else. I'm all for, you know, I, I, I'm, let's not be disingenuous. I teach in a business school. I'm not going to tell you that bureaucracy and red tape is good. I think I'm all for the for efficiency. But when you prioritize efficiency to that extent, then you have to question what the costs are. Yeah, I'd like you to just, maybe we can talk a little bit about the basics of uh, the system that's in place, and then we'll kind of drill down into um, how they're used, because we have sort of a a list of of services that we'll provide, not just the corporate creation, but also LLC licensing that you can uh, layer uh, to avoid um, any kind of uh, liability you might have, lax regulations on consumer interest rates, for example, with an uh, 81 with the Financial Center Development Act. So you, can you give us a sort of a, if you had to sort of give, a, give us bullet points before we start talking about some specifics, um, how do you explain it to somebody, and you've probably had to do this quite a bit, how do you explain it to somebody in five minutes who doesn't know what we're doing here? Sure. Um, yeah, so well, I've given you some of my bullet points, um, yeah. which is that Delaware plays this critical role in the capitalist system, and that role is largely unexplored outside of the kind of scholarly journals that people at Dale read, um, you know, and, and the fact that you, you punch so much above your weight, the fact that these 1.6 million corporations are almost all of them not actually in Delaware, but somewhere else. And so, you know, the lights are on, but no one's home. And um, the, you know, if you talked about LLCs, Delaware, you know, the Secretary of State's office will tell you quite rightly, will we'll brag, and they're, 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 that's fine for them to brag about it. They'll talk about how two-thirds of the Fortune 500 companies are registered in Delaware. Now, those companies, companies like Google and Amazon, you can criticize them, but they are transparent. They have to report quarterly earnings and they report a lot of information. United States, you know, if I compare it to the UK, you do, we do not have quarterly reporting in the UK. It's six monthly reporting in the UK. So there's a fairly high level of transparency in, uh, in corporate reporting for C-corps, as they call them, for these big publicly listed corporations. Compare that to private companies and particularly uh, the LLCs, you know, there's no reporting requirement at all. And this is a big issue that, you know, uh, maybe you want to do a separate podcast on, but the, the privatization of the American economy is huge. It's an issue that is very live right now in Washington because the SEC is well is, is, is very interested in this. There's a couple of commissioners who are extremely concerned about the privatization of the U.S. economy. Just to give you one nugget on that, 
there's a not very widely known index called the Wilshire 5000, which has five, that is supposed to be the 5,000 most traded stocks in the US. Well, guess what? There aren't 5,000 widely traded stocks in the US. There's only three and a half thousand. And the number is more than halved over the past 20 years because of things like private equity and companies not wanting to go, go into this system of transparency. So if you, you have about 250,000 businesses registered in Delaware every year, 683 a day on average, more than 70% of those are LLCs. They're not public companies. So they are created by maybe a small number of people, maybe a, a, an individual. And um, we don't know for what purpose they're created. In many cases, we don't know who is the real owner of those organizations. And by the way, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about Corporate Transparency Act, but we still won't know because in Delaware, you still won't be required to identify yourself. That Nothing changes for Delaware because of any legislation that's coming in at the federal level right now, the way it's being discussed. So um, more than 70% of these new um, corporations or companies registered, uh, should correct myself, because LLCs are not strictly speaking corporations, they are companies. Uh, more than 70% are LLCs. So LLCs is really what drives this business. Again, Delaware didn't create the LLC or even champion it. The first LLCs were in Wyoming. But Delaware came in, afterwards copied the structure and uh, was able to make it uh, work for, for you, you know, the system that you have uh, there. So LLCs is sort of where it's at. And if you look at a lot of the wrongdoing, the headline grabbing stuff, it comes through LLCs. But you said earlier, Rob, that you know the headlines are sort of what 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 um makes what what gets people's attention about Delaware. But I actually think it's a lot of the non-headline stuff that's where the volume of things like tax uh, avoidance are happening. You know, I had an event last night here in Chicago and I said, it's not really the African dictator or the, you know, South American drug lord. It's more like the dentist in Naperville, which is a suburb of a fancy suburb of Chicago, very nice suburb of Chicago. That's more what it's like. Someone who has a few, you know, dental offices and wants to have a tax efficient strategy. And I don't blame any individual for having an accountant tell them to do that. It's not my job to tell people. You can imagine, Rob, that people are now coming to me and saying, where should I incorporate? And I say, I do not give financial legal advice. You know, that's what happens when you write a book. But um, but uh, that's where a lot of the activity is. What they use, they use LLCs, people doing Airbnb, people who have like multiple Airbnbs want to set up, as you said, a series LLC. So each of those Airbnbs is protected in its own entity. And if something happens with one, it can't affect another. There's a lot, I think, although we don't have any data on this. We don't have any data on any of this. So this is all speculation. But there is a fair amount of single-use LLCs. In other words, I want to do one transaction, maybe bring something over, some money over from somewhere or something else, and I'll just set up an LLC for the explicit purpose of doing that. And then I won't keep it in good standing. I don't need to pay the fees the following year. So to a certain extent, there's a bit of a Ponzi scheme feel to the Delaware incorporations industry and that we have to get more and more companies every year. It's not just about serving the clients that we have. It's about getting new clients all the time, which is, again, very important to keep everything 
um, very easy and very simple and not to ask any questions that we don't, we are not required to ask. So I think th those are sort of my bullet points about, you know, how we got to this uh, situation and the, the implications are everywhere, but I don't think the, that's why I tried to, you know, the book talks about the criminal, but also talks about the wealthy and by wealthy, it doesn't mean, I don't mean what they call in the industry, ultra high net worth individuals who are the sort of Jeff Bezos's. I mean, what the regular old high net worth individuals who are the dentists in Naperville and other, not to pick on Naperville, but other places. And so all sorts of people are using these structures. Um, you know, when I've started to give these talks, people have come up to me, people I know and like very much are telling me, oh yeah, we created a Delaware LLC. So it is very, very uh, common for, uh, for people to use these to be tax efficient. And um, and there's a lot of legitimate activity, of course, I'm not suggesting people are using them for anything illegal, but we have to ask, you know, do we want this system that is so easy to do something like dodge taxes really using complexity that doesn't create any value? It just shifts value around. And a lot of what you see in Delaware is not value creating behavior, it's value extracting behavior. And you see that um, a lot using structures like LLCs, trusts to a lesser extent. It's take it's shuffling money around, making sure that you avoid taxes, but not creating anything. I want people, if I had my way, uh, the Weitzman way, I would say, let's try focus on creating value. There's been too much emphasis in the generally in the market system on saving. Um, on, on the bottom line, on saving on our expenses and not enough on the top line on creating uh, wealth for everyone. I mean, creating value, adding value, creating economic value. Yeah, and, and I think you do a very good job in the book of, of also saying, you know, this is a piece of a larger system. If you work back toward, um, you know, tax uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion schemes, especially criminal ones uh, or ones that wind up in, in civil matters like di personal divorces of high net worth individuals. Um, it's all part of a chain. You know, you, you can you can do something in, in Delaware, but then that will go to the Caymans and then that will go to, uh, you know, Panama. Uh, so it, but when you look at that stuff and start to track it, you see that uh, Delaware is part of that. Um, sort of nefarious sort of uh, money you know, shell game, you know, uh, whatever you want to say. So, you know, I, I, I think you do a very good job of explaining, like, there's nothing of value there. We're just extracting out um, some fees to allow to allow people to, um, you know, to shift money around, whether for legitimate business reasons, but anonymously with no transparency or for nefarious reasons. Um, you mentioned... Uh, one of the and, and I think probably Bullock mentions it. I don't have the the quote in front of me, and I wonder uh, also we'll, we'll throw it to Dale too. But there is this argument about capital flight. Like if we don't do this, if we don't allow all of these different uh, products, if we, you know, if we don't do this, then they're just going to go do it somewhere else. So we might as well we might as well uh, be the leader in this, and this might you know this will be our legacy. Um, first of all, did you? I'm sure you heard that quite a bit from from folks about capital flight. What's your position on it? And and maybe uh, also Dale can give us like some historical uh, sort of context for it as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, so I think as a basic question, probably I should have said this when you asked my bullet points, which leads into that, which is the most obvious question is why are there so many companies registered in Delaware? <laughs> and when you ask that question, people who have a response at all, which is not many people, tend to give you a very single, simple answer. So some people will say it's the chance record because you know, it's so fast and predictable. And in case you don't know, the Chancery Court is a court that effectively nowadays handles business cases almost exclusively, but has played, Dale, you'll tell us, played a significant role in all sorts of other cases, including, you know, um, places of race relations. And then it's a cause of equity. So it, it, it's very important, but nowadays, mainly for, for business cases, and it's very fast and arguably predictable, although I question in the book how predictable it really is. Then we could, so that's the chancery court. Then um, the, if you ask people in government in Delaware, they'll tell you it's the ease and the low cost of setting up companies. And if you ask transparency campaigners, they'll say it's because of corporate anonymity. And if you ask tax campaigners, they'll say, because Delaware is a tax haven. And if you ask people in the startup world, they'll say, they just told us to register in Delaware. You know, I had a I was speaking to a to a former student of mine last night, who's from uh, forget where, but somewhere in Latin America, Chile, I think. And he said, "Well, they told us if we want to get funding, we have to be in Delaware. We cannot incorporate in any other state. That's where, you know, that's where the funders recognize you have to be." So there's just kind of a nothing succeeds like success feeling about Delaware. That that's just if you're going to incorporate outside your home state, you're going to incorporate in Delaware. Sure enough, research suggests that. 95% of out-of-state registr uh, corporate registrations in America are in Delaware. So the, the, there are these kind of five big reasons, the Chancery Court, the ease of doing business, Delaware's a tax haven, uh, anonymity, and then just because, because <laughs> that's what you do. And all of those are right. There isn't a single one valid reason. They're all valid. There's no simple answer to that question because you have 1.6 million companies and growing, you know, by next year, it'll be 1.7 probably. Um, those range from the Googles and Amazons and Teslas to Joe Schmo LLC, single person. So there's no way that their motivations would be the same. Most likely, Joe Schmo isn't going to use the chancery court. So if that's 70% of your registrations, they are very unlikely to end up in chancery court, whereas Google and Amazon are definitely going to be in Chancery Court at some point. So there's there's no way that that those motivations could be the same. Google can't be motivated by anonymity because there is no anonymity for a public company in America. So it, it, the um, the the idea there's a single reason is 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 just far too simplistic. And people who tell you that typically know something about Delaware from their own experience. Like a lawyer will always tell you it's the Chancery Court. Well. It is for some companies, but it ain't for a lot of companies. Um, so in the, in, the, in the sort of marketing material, which I encourage every all your listeners to, to look at, um, which is on the Secretary of State uh, website, and they have a really good Q&A where they answer a lot of these points. But I encourage you to read the Q&A and then read my book because I try to sort of have an additional response to what their response is. So they'll say it's the Chancery Court, it's the division of corporations, we operate at the speed of the private sector, all of that is true. But it's worth pointing out that Delaware isn't a passive recipient of this system, it's resisted 
any attempt to require it to ask the owners of registering companies to identify themselves. And as you say, they've done that on the grounds that it would drive registrations to more lightly regulated states. So just before we move on and address that argument, if you think about that, that is an admission, an oblique admission, but an admission nevertheless. That anonymity is a big part of what drives companies to Delaware. Because you know, if we could add that question to the incorporation form, and if we drive people away, then those are the people who want privacy, secrecy, anonymity. And we'd have the other companies that have nothing to hide. After all, remember Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's fixer who, was, who uh, paid off Stormy Daniels? He wrote his name on the company that he created in Delaware to pay her off. You know, he didn't need to write his name, but he did. So, I mean, maybe that indicates Michael Cohen was not quite aware. Well, you know what they say, Trump, around, the people around Trump, not, he doesn't have the best people. He does not. Yeah. Have so maybe Michael Cohen isn't the sharpest lawyer, particularly if your client is Donald Trump, a difficult client. But um, he didn't need to do that. Uh, but we could ask people, we could add a, a question and anybody who doesn't have anything to hide would answer that question. Of course, the fact is they're right. They would lose companies to less regulated states, but those would be the companies that would be seeking anonymity. So by not asking that question, then we're saying, you know, that we we want to have some of that business. After all, all of the, most of this, what drives this is LLCs. And many of those LLCs choose to remain anonymous. So, so to 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 get directly to the to the kind of question of you know yeah, there's two ways of saying it. One is you know if we didn't do it, wouldn't wouldn't other people do it? Or if Delaware didn't exist, we would have to create it. Somebody else would be doing it. And of course, there are other states, right? We know like Nevada and Wyoming that do basically the same kind of thing. Um, so this is an American problem. It's not a Delaware. It's not just a Delaware problem. But you know, a couple of things I would add. Delaware has set the rules that the rest of the world has to follow. So Delaware has huge power in this area. Um, and it, yeah, nice. and you mentioned earlier the usury rates, the the credit card removing cap, credit card caps, interest rate caps. Delaware decided to do that and therefore completely transform the credit card system. And in the same way, Delaware has allowed corporate anonymity. Um, and so it's, a, it's it effectively set anonymity as the default. So it, Delaware hasn't just been a, a passive observer of this. It's done it. It's helped shape the system. And it's also, if you, I'm sure we'll get to this, but we talk about the way that decision-making is done because of the, the way that the corporate bar plays such a big role in shaping the legislation, you, you effectively done so in a way that that bypasses any kind of democratic oversight. Yeah, I definitely want to get to the corporate law council because people, this is one of the things that I think, even people who understand the structure of like the products do not understand how the edifice is maintained, we'll say. Um, but for, uh, first, I, I think people are fascinated by the Chancery Court, and I know there's a lot of history there. I don't know if Dale wants to uh, sort of throw in, because, again, not only is there a lot of history in Chancery Courts from British common law just to deal with equity, like civil equity issues, they they did hear cases outside of corporate law in history, even here, important ones, civil rights cases. Uh, but that's... Now it's just a, that's just a vestige of of older times 
Um, but I, do you want to kind of give a little more background on the Chancery Courts from a historical perspective? Uh, this is where I have to admit that I'm not a legal historian, but I, I will say I, I, I will spin it to some area that I do know a little bit more about. Um, I think that, that that's a really interesting thing to track in Delaware and something that the legal history that that you cite, you know, this book is um, uh, wonderful for satisfying historians who want footnotes. So I, I commend you on that. You, you, uh, I was very happy to see that. But the, the legal history, uh, the lawyers care about like, what are the outcomes I can get from going to Delaware? Or or what are the really big picture? What does it mean for corporate law that 26 people who are not me, this law professor, are making law, but I as a law professor want to do it? You know, That's the vibe you get from those, those articles a lot of the time. Um, and they're not interested in the history of the Chancery Court in Delaware, which as you point out, Rob, is really unusual, right? Is really unusual that it's A, persisted, and that B, it's gone so far away from what chancery courts, you know, what the name means and what they do in British common law and what they did in colonial and 19th century American law um, is, is here cases of equity outside of the precedent system and outside of the black letter law um, and, and really open a, you know, it's a place to take care of widows and orphans and deal with moral issues and not just, you know, did your contract go, but it's become this contract position. So I don't know that anyone's written that history, but now I have uh, an idea that I want to pitch to grad students um, about, about what to do it. But it reminds me a little bit about uh, how the, uh, you know, on the, on the kind of national level, how the 14th Amendment has been, uh, was originally proposed and ratified as a protection of civil rights and political rights for um, people who were harmed by slavery and, and to, as, a, as an effort to create a multiracial democracy. And, you know, there's a whole part of the 14th Amendment about not letting former traitors uh, who committed treason in defense of slavery to come back in as political actors. And very quickly, the Supreme Court in the United States read it as actually protecting corporate personhood. Um, and, in, and in more recent times, um, this, you know, the, the Supreme Court kind of reverting to form has, has used the, uh, rejected the 14th Amendment uh, and readings of the 14th Amendment as, as doing anything other than consolidating kind of an imaginary order of, of um, you know, uh, uh, this kind of quote unquote traditional order that does not respect the rights of, of people who are not uh, white men, and, and, but also expanded the, the speech rights of non-human um, uh, uh, bodies, uh, that is to say corporations. So it's, it, it tracks a very similar, you know, like the 14th Amendment is why Citizens United was the style, or the, the peculiar reading of the 14th Amendment is why Citizens United is why it is. But, and that's also, you know, Delaware's state courts track that as well. Um, but to kind of, I, I, the question I wanted to kind of get at a little bit, if I, if I might kind of redirect this a little bit, is, you know, this question of why Delaware, you know, you're right, it's an American problem, right? It's, you know, it's first movers in Wyoming and South Dakota and New Jersey, right? All understood at the time as like, these are big deals and they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, uh, be more permissive in order to attract more business in order to to to, to have government revenues that way. Um, but it's also an international phenomenon. And there's been, you know, the tax havens are, you know, like, as you were saying, Rob, this is like, we, we think tax havens, everyone does think Delaware, but they think the Caymans, they think, you know, the, or, or flags of convenience in Panama and all that kind of stuff. And the scholarship on that, there's a historian at Vanderbilt is doing a really interesting work um, on a project she calls Archipelago Capitalism. And basically she makes a similar, uh, her name is Vanessa Ogle, and she makes a, an argument that tax havens are an example of empire coming home. So the way that this worked and the, and the kind of narrative you've got for Delaware, where Delaware steals this thing from New Jersey, but then is an active participant in shaping all of the world's you know, practices around this, she sees that in all these other places that in the aftermath of World War II, when nation states are really powerful, um, these edges of empire, they start becoming these secrecy, this like where free market capitalism can, 
can, you know, the ideologically, but also in practice where they can just move things around and not create value through new processes or ideas insofar that ever happens, but but to, to do it just by moving numbers from bank accounts and, and evading taxes, evading savings. Um, and then that comes home when Bretton Woods collapses in the 1970s, comes home meaning uh, uh, kind of gets re-exported out and becomes the dominant form. Um, and that's an argument historians make about a lot of different things. Police, you know, the militarization of police in the United States follows very similar. You know, what happens in Vietnam comes back and gets re-implemented. The, the same weapons are used, that kind of thing. So this is a this is a kind of common formulation among historians. But it makes Delaware kind of weird because Delaware is not the empire. Delaware is just a random state that was easy to capture, right? So I wonder I wonder what you think about you know particularly with your international experience. What do you think about that argument about? these kinds of political conditions and legal situations come to exist because there's a there's a state of exception there's a place where things are exceptional and then it becomes the the, the keystone does delaware fit that model and then and then what does that say about um you know the ways that the, the democratic aspects of this because it seems like a lot of your story is about here's the problem and then and but the underlying it all is like there's just a fundamental absence of democracy in setting the rules for any kind of market behavior. And I, I don't know if, how that lands with you. Wow, there's a, that, that, that's great, Dale. There's a lot there. Um, I don't know what to make of the argument about imperial history. I mean, Delaware, so the joke that I make at the beginning of the book, uh, Rob, you talked about Wales and comparing Wales and Delaware. And Wales does not have a lot of corporate registrations. And I say, you know, what we export mainly from Wales is celebrities, you know, like Shirley Bassey is from my hometown, Tom Jones, and, uh, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones and various Anthony Hopkins and others. And um, what Delaware exports is law. You know, that's that's your main export. You used to export various other things, you know, peaches, etc. And now uh, you export law. So Delaware has a, plays a huge role around the world. I'm actually doing... Uh, one of my co-Princeton authors, Kimberly K. Wang, um, has written a book called Spiderweb Capitalism, where she uh, did the same kind of project, looking at investments in what she calls frontier markets, which is like Vietnam and uh, Myanmar, Burma. So, you know, uh, she was talking about the influence of Delaware. She said everywhere we went, she went in, in Vietnam, people were saying, oh, you should go to Delaware because that's really where it's all going on. So Delaware is not just important in the United States. It's important all around the world. At one time, I, I remember hearing that Singapore was trying to recast itself as the Delaware of the East. <laughs> so Delaware does have an, is, is an international brand. And of course, you guys will know that your Secretary of State and the uh, judiciary go on these road shows they'll go all around the world advertising delaware it's one of the interesting different things to go back to the chancery court that the chancellors will go and advertise delaware will be part of the marketing machine they don't just sit there and pontificate they're actively promoting the whole um the whole system so yes it definitely i don't know about imperialism uh, i'll i'll kind of leave you guys to to think about the legacy there, but it's certainly, well, I, I guess the Chancery Court itself is a legacy of imperialism. I mean, that's a weird one. It's it's something that doesn't actually exist in England. <laughs> you know, the thing that came from England doesn't exist in England or anywhere else. As far as I know, the Chancery Court is unique. It only exists in Delaware. Um, so as you say, it's it's taken a 
an, an interesting turn. I think they do still occasionally hear non-business cases, but it's rare. So, um, so that's in itself is a is is a heritage that they were able to they were able to adapt and develop. And I should say, the Chancery Court, it's, I mean, it works. It is efficient. It is effective. As you say, the problem is, it's just there's not much oversight. So you have a the executive and the legislature are sort of neutralized in Delaware. You have a very strong judiciary, and they're very, very uh, powerful and present. You have a very strong sort of legal industrial complex, but the political side is really weak, you know. And uh, and really, I, I interviewed um, Jack Markell um, for this book, um, who I have to say was very charming. Um, but we did disagree a little bit uh, about uh, about this. But, uh, and but my sense from Jack Markell was that, um, and I apologize if I'm not saying his name completely, Markell or Markell. It's Markell. You got it. You got it. Markell. Okay. So it, I, when I was asking him about this, I sort of felt that he just wasn't that interested. There's sort of a feeling of, well, well we, have, we have the experts. Let the experts do what they do. And it's sort of a, te a perfect technocracy, you know, which in a way I, I'm not, it's not something that I'm necessarily against, but a technocracy with no democratic oversight is is nightmarish and that's sort of what we have there you know the legislature that you guys have is not full of you have very few lawyers in it for a start i think there's four right and the, the lawyers that you have not to sort of attack them personally but they are not they're not the people who lead the scrutiny of the legislation speaking of that i do want before we end to for you to give us a, a review of how the Corporation Law Council operates, uh, how uh, it operates um, with the legislature. And also, I, I, didn't, I was happy to read uh, the passage about our, our hero, John Kowalko. Uh, we, he's retiring uh, this year, and we call him our representative emeritus. Uh, but he had a back and forth with Melanie George Smith uh, several years ago about trying to have some sort of democratic oversight on the statute changes that were uh, submitted by the secret uh, council. Um, but I, could you talk about that a little bit and, and sort of what you, what you took from that and, um, and also uh, what your impression of Kowalko was because he, uh, he is our big hero over here. Yeah, uh, well, I thought he was great. I mean, I have to say everyone I met in Delaware was great. Did I include in that Jeff Bullock, who was who was very friendly and, and open to, to meeting me and his office were very um, cooperative with, they did not withhold any information from me anyway. Um, and or everybody else I met with who, whether they support the system or don't, I thought was, was terrific. And John Kowalko was one of the people I was uh, pleased to meet and kept in touch with a little bit over the years. And I was just very disappointed to see that he's um, decided to retire, but um, of course he deserves it. Uh, he's been a lone voice, hasn't he? He in, has. In kind of, I, I mean, and I, I want to hear from you guys, actually, but maybe we can do this after the podcast, about because you have a whole load of new sort of liberal, legisl radical legislators. I want to hear if they either are interested or could be made interested in this topic, because it, 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 it would be, it would be a, a tragedy to let the issue um, kind of rest because John Kowalko is no longer in the state house. 
But I can well, tell you, I can tell you the story if you want it. Yeah, I will tell you this: uh, the 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 new wave of sort of more radical. I I would say it's it's more the latter. I don't think that they're necessarily keen on it today, but they could be made uh, to feel keen. I think, and in in their they don't need to be defended, but in their defense, I think most of the issues that they focus on, because it's a part-time legislature and they don't have a lot of time, are sort of more material community issues that come up. And this obviously is a sort of an esoteric structure. I think that probably helps uh, with the management of it. But I, I definitely think that there are people coming along who, uh, and people have said it on this podcast, who um, Kowalko has inspired, has mentored, and and we're getting more of them elected, so there is a possibility that some of these issues could be um, ameliorated in some way. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, go to the corporate law council. And, and I, feel free to interrupt me because as I'm here, I can drone on. I'm so I'm so interested in this topic. I have the capacity to drone on a lot about it. Let me tell you the story about John Kowalko and Melanie George Smith, who by the way was also charming um, when I had a chance to speak uh, with her. So. This was a uh, John Kowalko had proposed a piece of legislation, which ironically later was adopted, but not under his authorship. And the legislation that he wanted to put in front of the, the lawmakers in the state legislature was essentially that when a um, registering agent in Delaware forms a corporation with a client, that they would require the agent to check on a list that is produced by the US Treasury to make sure essentially that person isn't a wanted terrorist, money launderer, et cetera. So it's pretty, uh, been pretty sort of uh, not controversial piece of legislation. And as I say, it later became law. So it's not as if this is something that there was a strong objection to. But when John Kowalko proposed this to, I believe it was the Judiciary Committee, Melanie George Smith, who was maybe the leader or maybe one of the leaders of that committee, said, has this gone through the process? And I think Kowalko said, what process? And she said, has this been proposed by the Corporation Council of the Delaware Bar? He said, no, I mean, I'm proposing it. She said, well, that's not the process. The process is that any regulation has to come from the Delaware Bar. In other words, an elected lawmaker does not have the power to propose legislation, only an unelected lawyer who's part of the, this council of the Delaware Bar. So that to me was kind of very revealing and, and fascinating, particularly since, as I say, it wasn't controversial. That piece of legislation later did become law, but not under his um, sponsorship. Okay, so there is this organization, Delaware Bar Council. It is pretty secret. Um, I think I say in the book uh, that Melanie George Smith revealed to me that she had asked to attend one of their meetings and was turned down. So if she can't go, then it's certainly not open to anyone else. It's uh, and, and it's an industry body. Let's be clear. They're not required to open themselves up. But um, th this is 26 serving lawyers who, who write proposed changes to the Delaware corporate code and then pass them to a friendly legislator who introduces them. And essentially, there's no debate. And uh, they get rubber stamped, and then the governor signs them into, into law. And that's how the corporate code gets made and reformed every year. Now, are they incorporating things in that which are nefarious? 
we don't know <laughs> because they're not really it's not really scrutinized they don't report on what happens in the council what the debates are um they, they you can go to their website and every year or two they will update it they're not particularly sort of diligent about doing it but the update says something like a meeting was held proposals were made that's basically what it says and then you get to see those proposals when they come when they appear in the legislature as i say there's no debate now the, the people who are on this corporation council are serving lawyers except one they're serving lawyers so they make the rules effectively that then govern their own workplace you know it's so that always seemed to me to be odd and i said to several people does that not look a little bit like the, the fox guarding the hen house they're they're self-regulating effectively um and i was i was told that that wasn't a problem again because it's sort of a technical issue not people are not agitating on the streets about the delaware corporate code so let's leave it to the experts uh to sort out but the members of that corporate council all come from the large firms which are you know in that in that uh, square in the middle of, of wilmington and um and they make the rules and then they they argue the cases in court under the rules that they have effectively written now there is a weird argument in legal scholarship which goes like this there may not be checks and balances in the legislature but there are checks and balances within the council <laughs> how so because both shareholders and management are represented and i accept that in fact i think there's a there's a not quite accurate argument that's sometimes made that says delaware system is management friendly i don't think that's necessarily the case and actually there's sort of a if you game theory it it can't be too management friendly because otherwise the, the shareholder lawsuits would dry up if they never won any any um cases so we we didn't we we you mentioned dale the history of the cases and you're right that you can go online and find histories and i believe there's one on the secretary of state's website where you know we'll talk about the history these big decisions like revlon etc very interesting not something that i personally wanted to get into because i'm not a i'm not a lawyer and i'm not writing a book about the fiduciary responsibilities of managers but um that would be a really hard this was a hard sell but that would be a really hard sell for a popular book but um the the so there's this balance because there's shareholders and there's managers and both of them have their lawyers there and they they thresh it out between them so my question is what's missing from that first of all democracy is missing and second all the things that companies have been telling us in the past three or four years that they have core social purpose that they want to improve not just the lot of their shareholders but of stakeholders including society stakeholder capitalism which i can tell you working in a business school is very much the buzz phrase that companies are using where are the rest of the stakeholders where are the lawyers representing workers where are the lawyers representing the environment or anybody else, the society in general, they're not there. So one of the proposals I make, which I think is a pretty modest proposal, I didn't want to make write one of those books where you say at the end, the final chapter makes proposals that are like, we need a global authority to do blah, 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 because those things don't happen. I wanted something very modest and practical. So to my mind, one thing we could do that would open up this council and improve um, uh, the transparency and, and and get people interested in how the law is made would be um to open it up to have lawyers who represent other interests 
maybe even, God forbid, lawyers out from outside Delaware who can represent the interests of the United States more generally, but certainly lawyers who represent the interests of workers and potential workers and who represent the interests of the environment. We haven't talked about the environment, and I don't in very much in this book, but I know that environmental protection has been very weak generally in Delaware. Delaware is not unique in that case, but it would make sense if companies are telling us they want to have a corporate purpose and they want to improve society and think about stakeholders, that we represent some of those stakeholders on the council. The other small proposal I won't make before I hand it back to you, just to talk about the responsibilities of the corporate bar, is the legislature, as you say, is part-time. There's not many lawyers in it. Um, the lawyers who are in it are arguably part of the system and not objective and we're not, not in a good position to scrutinize it. Um, it makes sense that we require the council in some case, in some way, to explain the significance of why these laws are needed. And I watched um, a during the pandemic, or the height of the pandemic, um, there was a, I believe it was the 2020 or could have been 2021 session of the General Assembly on Zoom. And it was on YouTube. So I watched it and there was changes proposed to the corporate code, which John Kowalko objected to. And various other people objected to them as well. Um, and there was a point at which someone said, we need a lawyer here to tell us what these mean. And there was kind of, where's the lawyer? <laughs> and there was, no, there was no one to explain why these changes were necessary, what they meant. And at the end, when they went for a vote, everybody except John Kowalko approved the changes. So I think that system could be tweaked to, to, to require the corporate bar, Delaware, to explain to the lawmakers why these changes are necessary and to answer real questions about them. That at least would give us a bit more scrutiny of, um, of why these changes are important and would hopefully open up a bit of debate and create a bit of interest that currently is not there because we say this is technical stuff and we'll leave it to the experts. Yeah, so yeah, you, you make those two uh, uh, recommendations just about the work of the Corporate Law Council, just so there's some more information uh, and other and a little, you know, not just uh, management and their shareholders, but but elsewhere. You you put a great um, quote in the in the book from a, a Boston College professor about that. It's just shareholders and management, and no other, no community, you know, the environment. All of that is is not considered at all, and we don't know why. Um, but there's two other ones that I want you to hit on quickly before we uh, close it out. One is public uh, registry of corporate owners. Uh, and the other is uh, strengthening the Corporate Transparency Act. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, that, the, the possibility, and, and have you raised that with um, some of the leaders here in the state and, and what their reaction might, might have been? Um, yes, well, so, so listen, I would say that it, you can get quite depressed about the situation i'm i'm extremely pessimistic you don't know this i mean we've done we've done three years plus of these and i'm famously um uh very cynical about almost everything in the state so you, you probably can't make me any more um pessimistic than i possibly am already okay well I, I cynical maybe i don't want to encourage you to be cynical but i want to encourage you to be skeptical but i do think that this is actually a great moment things are moving in a very positive direction unfortunately not for a good reason uh, which is which is the war in Ukraine, but but it has done a tremendous amount to focus mind. So I can report some good stuff 
that I would love um, people in Delaware to think about, and maybe we can talk more about it um, at a future point. Um, let's just go back for a second, though. So the Corporate Transparency Act, this is a big step forward. Uh, in 2018, Jeff Bullock, your Secretary of State, revealed that after decades of leading campaigns in Washington against greater transparency in corporate registrations, he had come around to the idea that it was necessary and put his weight behind uh, a bill which had been around for a while, the corporate, which became the Corporate Transparency Act. It was passed in 2020. It was uh, bipartisan, by the way. So I, I don't. I know you guys are a little bit more on the liberal wing, but I don't think there's any reason why any of this is a liberal type argument. Transparency in general is great for financial markets. It's great for capitalism. Um, you you know we want to have uh, good accurate prices, and we want to know what managers doing. It's good for regulation. Um, it's good for democracy. Uh, because voters have more information about who's really funding campaigns. So there's absolutely no reason this needs to be a left or right issue. And uh, the Corporate Transparency Act wasn't. It was a bipartisan bill uh, signed by, by Trump. Um, you know, he's Trump, the Trump White House supported it. So uh, what the effect this will have is it will set up for the first time a registry of what they call beneficial owners, which means the real owners of companies registered in the United States. So that's huge. Uh, now, there's a lot of buts there. Yeah, my, just... note, my note actually says Corporate Transparency Act benefits and loopholes. So maybe you can yeah. some of those. Well, it's not, it's, so there's some loopholes. There's also just some practical stuff. For example, it's horribly delayed. So it was it's supposed to be set up really by the end of this year or early 2023, and that's looking less and less li likely. Janet Yellen was being asked about it uh, recently and had to say that they're just hopelessly behind. Um, so first of all, the way it's structured, the rules are still being written, so this could all change, but as far as we know, based on legislation, it is not going to be public. So we will not be able to search this, as you can, for example, in the UK, where you can search on Companies House, um, which is the registry of, of uh, owners. Of, com of companies and directors. So we're not gonna be able to search it. As far as I know, you're not gonna be able to put in a freedom of information request and get anything either. And that's partly because it was, you know, framed as a national security thing, right? So this is right. this is like, this is a, it's a police, it's a policing bill, not a, not a transparency bill. That's right. So it's, so it's available for law enforcement. That's right, that, that's correct. So supposedly the treasury, you know, FinCEN, which is the financial crimes unit, is supposedly going to share it openly with lots of other government agencies. Well, we know how well that goes, right? Government agencies working together to share information. We've sort of been there before. So I'm not very optimistic that even on that basis, Dale, that, any, that, that it would really be successful, even on its own terms. So it's first of all, it's not public. Um, and, you know, I think that that raises the question of not only cooperation between agencies, but capacity. Now, FinCEN, the agency in the Treasury, has 300 people in it. The Biden administration has put in a request to increase that funding to 400 people. Okay, so they'll get another 100 people. They're going to have, there are tens of millions of companies in America. So suddenly they're going to have all this information dumped on their, um, on their heads. And I, I'm not at all confident that they'll have the capacity to verify it. Because even with 300 people, they're already behind 
in, in investigating the red flags that the banking sector has raised about its customers and, and transferring funds. So there's a question about capacity. There's a question about cooperation. Um, there's a question about trusts. Tr there is an exemption in the legislation for trusts. And we know that trusts, you know, from the Pandora Papers, a big leak of, of uh, um, tax avoidance type behavior, that um, trusts are a really important part of how wealthy people transfer their money around the world, including, of course, Russian oligarchs who we want to sanction. And we, you know, that it, this is undermining our foreign policy because we don't even know what activity they're conducting in the United States. And the system depends on self-reporting. So here's the weird thing. Nothing changes in Delaware. I'm going to be able to register my in Delaware, my anonymous company in 30 minutes in the middle of the night. And then um, I, I'm, I will have to go to file another form in Washington with the Treasury that actually tells them who I am, which none of us is going to see. And then we're going to depend on them to verify that information. Now, of course, we could have done something much simpler, which was we could have added a question to the Delaware registration form. <laughs> One question, maybe we'll do, I mean, your listeners will know that it's easier to set up a company in Delaware than to get a library card. You, for a library card, you have to show your ID. For a company, you don't. So we could have added one question and maybe asked the registering agents to check some form of ID. And if they didn't have the ID, then they wouldn't be able to register the company. But instead of that, we created a whole new system that dumps the problem at the door of the U.S. Treasury, which is which just shows you how powerful Delaware is. Because Bullock presumably got behind the legislation, but said, we ain't collecting the information, you are. And that was always, to be fair to Jeff Bullock, he's always been very consistent on that. In the, in the 90s and 2000s, Carl Levin, Michigan senator, was pushing legislation that required, that would have required agents in states to collect that information. Jeff Bullock famously led a campaign by hiring lobbyists in Washington to defeat that, was successful. Um, by the way, one of the other sponsors of that legislation was Senator Barack Obama, our senator at the time in Illinois. So, you know, um, the uh, the power of Delaware is all over. The, the Delaware has shaped this legislation. I don't think that they wanted the legislation in the first place, but seeing the way that the wind was blowing, they were able to shape it to make sure that nothing changes in Delaware. So we'll still have anonymous companies registered in Delaware 30 minutes in the middle of the night. Okay, here's the optimistic stuff. First of all, I think that it will make some difference to have a corporate register. I think that some kind of wrongdoing, probably according to the people I speak to, will be deterred by the fact that there is a registry that is available at the very least to law enforcement. Um, but there's another thing that's happened in the past few months, sadly, because of the invasion of uh, Ukraine, which is that there's a renewed focus on Russian oligarchs and wealthy people moving their money around the world. So you've seen that in the UK, where you know suddenly they're saying we need to have not only registries of companies, but registries of owners of yachts and art and real estate. And the same kind of debate is happening here, which I think is the circumstances are horrific, but the outcome is could be very, very positive. Um, in New York State, there is a proposal, which I think could even be voted on in the next month or so, to 
force uh, to oblige companies to identify their beneficial owners. Now, the register, what they envisage won't be public, but it would, as I understand it, include all types of entities, including trusts. There is a proposal in Alaska to do the same with trusts. So states are moving ahead, are moving beyond the Corporate Transparency Act. So let's think about that for a second. If in New York State, where they, by the way, I think they also have 1.6 million companies registered, of course, for them, that's not as much revenue as it is for you relative to their size of their budget. But if, if in New York State, they pass, a they pass a piece of legislation creating a registry of all entities um, and make it available for freedom of information requests so journalists can get their hands on it, even if it's not completely public, that could be a game changer. I mean, that could put huge pressure on Delaware to do the same. If Delaware says, as they do on the, on the, on the Secretary of State's website, that you're Bergdorf Goodman or Tiffany, that you're a high quality product, then you don't want to have the dirty stuff. And if, if the argument that we talked about earlier, where, well, if we don't, if we, if we say no, somebody else will say yes, that will be challenged if New York State changes the rules. So it's a very exciting time. You, I would encourage your listeners to watch that debate in New York and the one in Alaska, though the one in Alaska is a little bit further behind. I think they'll come up for a vote for that possibly next year. But there is some really interesting stuff happening. Uh, real estate is going to be a market that is going to be um, under more scrutiny. And all the other things that, that have been facilitated, like, like yachts and, and art. So I would, be, I would encourage everyone to be optimistic, uh, to learn more about the topic, and to start to think about how can we raise this in, in, in places like Delaware, which... You know, I think the argument I would make is Delaware has nothing to lose. It only has something to gain. It can only be more like Bergdorf, Goodman and Tiffany if it improves the quality of the companies that registered there. You know, Delaware is a bit like Delaware behaves a bit like a financial services firm, doesn't it? You know, an office that's open till midnight. A bit like a lot like. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so and Delaware as a corporate structure, as Delaware itself, Delaware Inc. is a bit like a, a platform company, you know, like Amazon or, or Google or Facebook. And if you think about the history of platform companies, they started out saying, we just enable other people to do what they do. We just let them sell products. Then, of course, it turned out that people were selling, you know, Nazi memorabilia, white supremacy stuff and denying that the Holocaust happened and, and being racist and all this other stuff. So the companies had to say, OK, we don't we no longer allow that. And Facebook you know, has had terrible time trying to navigate this because it's now their responsibility. Do you remember when Facebook took out big ads saying, please regulate us? What industry does that? Because they're, they're terrified of doing it themselves. But that's the situation we're in um, with, with the corporate registrations. The federal government is not going to regulate places like Delaware. It's trying to reach directly to the companies, but there are all these problems that we talked about. So Delaware, to me, is sort of probably heading in the same direction as Facebook, where it's resisting the idea of policing its own uh, platform company. But I'm not sure that it can resist that for forever. And if New York does it, it could be very, very exciting. And we could see a lot of pressure on Delaware. Well, the book is What's the Matter with Delaware? How the First State Has Favored the Rich, the Powerful, and the Criminal, and How It Costs Us All. Uh, Hal Weitzman, thank you so much um, for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
It's been my great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Dale. And uh, thanks to your listeners. I hope this is not the last time I get to talk to people in Delaware. You know, I have to tell you, in Chicago, people are saying to me, what do people in Delaware say? So uh, <laughs> now you know. We say, we know. say it's a great book. We say it's a great book. So well, I say, to them, I, I say to them, there's a group of people who are aware that this is a problem and want to learn more. So it's very exciting that, you know, that, that we might have the opportunity to dig into this system and, and, and start questioning a little bit more. It's very, very needed. Yeah, and I, and I also have to say, um, you do delve into, and, and with Dale here, we're, he's a, a trained historian, I'm a fake historian, um, but you do get into some of the colonial history, some of the antebellum history uh, surrounding this, the Civil War and the politics within the state even, uh, which I think um, is very illustrative of sort of what the politics even are today. So for, for folks, we didn't get a chance to talk about that too much. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, those sections of the book as well. So I, I just wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but the history of race, it's no coincidence that, you know, like states like Alabama, Mississippi, Delaware is very business friendly. That doesn't, pe- that you cannot separate that social history from the economic and business history. And folks, uh, as I said, uh, there's going to be a raffle, a giveaway, a lottery, if you will. Uh, any patron of $5 a month or more at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker on June 15th is going to be put into uh, a lottery, and we're going to give away five signed copies of this book. Thank you, Hal, for uh, having helping facilitate this. Um, so yeah, that'll be that. That's going to be exciting. We're trying to get this information out to an audience who uh, really either knows a little bit about it or should know about it. And uh, and I'm excited. Um, <clears throat> if you are a five dollar a month patron now, you're already qua- you're already in. So you don't even have to do anything. So there you have it. Um, Dale, thank you uh, for joining us. I, I really appreciate you taking the time too to add a little uh, flavor to the conversation. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it, and thanks, thanks uh, to you for for having the doing the show, and thanks to Hal for writing a, a great book and one that I know I'll be uh, revisiting and assigning, and hopefully to to have more conversations about in the future. Cool. Well, um, Hal, I guess you, I guess uh, our our reputation preceded us because uh, I end every one of these with a little political catchphrase, which is uh, "left is best." <laughs>